The first of my posts was a focus summary of Part 3, Chapter 6, and Part 4, Chapter 1. Walking to Bakaleyev's lodgings, after leaving Porfiry's apartment, Razumihin tries to refute Raskolnikov's contention that Porfiry and Zamyatov believe him guilty of the murder. Razumihin believes that if they thought such a thing, they would try to hide it, but Raskolnikov is convinced they have some clever plan. Perhaps they were trying to provoke him with insolence, or frighten him by pretending to know. Or perhaps Porfiry simply blurted it out in vexation over having no real evidence. Razumihin calls the suspicion insulting, and expresses his fury over the insinuation. He has a thoroughly worked-out narrative to exonerate Raskolnikov. He was a poor, ragged, lonely student, suffering a delirious illness, who was suddenly forced to face some wretched policeman over an unexpected debt in a stifling atmosphere before a crowd of people on an empty stomach. So, of course he fainted when they spoke of the murder. Raskolnikov thinks to himself that Razumihin has put the defense quite well. Raskolnikov expresses bitterness over having to go see Porfiry again the next day, and Razumihin vows that he will go to Porfiry himself and get all the ins and outs from him. It occurs to Razumihin that Porfiry's question about the painters couldn't have been a trap, because the real murderer would never be so foolish as to admit having seen the workers. But Raskolnikov insists that he would have admitted it had he been the murderer, because only novices flatly deny everything. He adds that it is with precisely such stupid questions that clever people are most easily caught. The more cunning a man is, the less he suspects he will be caught in a simple thing. He remarks that Porfiry is no fool, and then reflects on the eagerness with which he has made this explanation to Razumihin. The realization that he finds an enjoyment in this battle of wits with Porfiry makes him uneasy. Raskolnikov tells Razumihin to go in to Pulcheria Alexandrovna and Dunya, and says he will be back in half an hour. Razumihin wants to go with him, but Raskolnikov screams again to stop torturing him, and Razumihin stays behind. Arriving home, Raskolnikov rushes in terror to the corner where he had hidden the stolen objects, fearing that something had been left there and could be used as evidence against him. But feeling around, he finds nothing. His ideas in a tangle, he walks dreamily out of his apartment and through the gateway. As he goes out, he hears the porter say, Here he is himself, and looks up to find him pointing Raskolnikov out to some short, wrinkled, unknown man looking at him grimly. The man then turns to go without saying a word, and the porter tells Raskolnikov, puzzled, that the man had been asking about him just as he emerged. Raskolnikov chases after the man to ask why he had been inquiring of him. The man is at first silent, and then raises his eyes, looks at him with a sinister expression, and says, Murderer. A shiver runs down Raskolnikov's spine, and his heart begins to throb. Then the man walks away, and from a distance looks back at Raskolnikov with an expression of hatred 
and triumph. With faltering steps, Raskolnikov makes his way back to his apartment and falls on his sofa with a moan. As he lies there, fragments of thoughts whirl through his mind like a hurricane. He tries to clutch at the pleasant ones, but is left with a feeling of oppression that is sometimes strangely pleasant. He hears Razumihin and Nastasia come into the apartment and pretends to be asleep, so they go away to let him rest. He wonders to himself who that man could be, and how he could have seen. He thinks about how the criminal can betray himself by overlooking the smallest detail. And he asks himself how he could have done what he did, knowing who he is, and how he should be. He is not like the real master to whom all is permitted, made of bronze, but of flesh. He is appalled by the loathsome image of a Napoleon creeping under an old woman's bed. Lying there, he sinks into a feverish excitement and begins raving. He thinks with self-loathing that he killed the old woman in a hurried eagerness to overstep, and in doing so, discovered that he was capable only of killing, and not even really capable of that. He recalls that he had wanted to live, himself, now, or not at all. He was not content to wait, like the socialists, for the happiness of all, but had to put his own brick in that happiness. But then, laughing like a madman, he thinks to himself with vindictive pleasure that he is only a louse. First, because for a month he had been trying to convince himself that he killed not for his own fleshly lusts, but for some noble purpose. Second, because he chose in the old woman such a useless louse on whom to carry out his aim. And finally, because he knew beforehand that he should think himself a more loathsome louse than she after killing her. He is no prophet with a saber on his steed, commanding that trembling creation obey. He is vulgar and abject. Soaked in sweat and struggling with delirium, he thinks about how he once loved his mother and sister, and how violently he hates them now. How he loathes the old woman and would kill her again if she came to life. And how sorry he is for poor Lizaveta, whose image he has suppressed, and who dissolves in his mind into the image of another gentlewoman who doesn't weep and gives up everything. Sonia. He loses consciousness and wakes up late in the evening in the street, not recalling how he got there. He sees again the same strange man who beckons to him and walks away. Raskolnikov follows him across a yard and up a dark, familiar staircase until he finds himself in the old woman's flat with everything as it was on the night of the murder. A dreadful hush makes his heart beat so violently it is painful. He sees, sitting on a chair in the corner, the old woman, bent double. He takes the axe from the noose and strikes her on the skull, but she does not stir. He bends down to the ground to look up at her face and discovers that she is shaking with noiseless laughter.
Fancying that he hears whispering and laughter from the bedroom, too, he begins hitting the old woman with all his force, but the laughter only grows. He tries rushing away and finds the corridor crowded with people staring at him in silence and expectation, and as he tries to scream, he wakes up. As he does, he sees a man standing in his doorway, watching him intently, and he wonders if he is still dreaming. The man steps into Raskolnikov's room, sits down on a chair, and watches him. After ten minutes of silence, Raskolnikov asks the man what he wants. The man says he knew Raskolnikov was not asleep, but only pretending, and he introduces himself. He is Arkady Ivanovich Svidrigailov. Svidrigailov says that he has come to make Raskolnikov's acquaintance and to ask for his assistance in a matter concerning Avdotya Romanovna. He asks Raskolnikov what it was he did that was particularly criminal. Was it that he insulted Dunya with his infamous proposals? He says he is only a man and that it is natural he would be attracted to a woman and he asks whether he is a monster or a victim. He calls reason the slave of passion and says he hurt himself more than anyone else. Raskolnikov answers simply that they want nothing to do with him. Svidrigailov says there would never have been any unpleasantness had it not been for the confrontation in the garden with Marfa Petrovna. Raskolnikov interrupts to comment that Svidrigailov has gotten rid of her. Svidrigailov responds that the medical inquiry diagnosed her of apoplexy due to bathing after a heavy dinner and a bottle of wine. He considered whether he had contributed to the calamity, and come to the conclusion that even that was out of the question. When Raskolnikov laughs, Svidrigailov says that he struck her only twice, that it left no marks, and that she was pleased he had done it because being insulted is a woman's only amusement. Raskolnikov considers getting up and walking out, but stays out of curiosity and a sense of prudence. Svidrigailov goes on to say that he and Marfa Petrovna rarely fought, and that he only whipped her twice in their seven years. He then makes reference to an incident years ago when a man was put to shame for having thrashed a German woman in the railway. He says that no one at the time considered that there are such provoking Germans that no man could resist thrashing them, and he declares that that is the only humane point of view. Svidrigailov says that he knows Raskolnikov must believe he has come with some hidden motive, but that really there is nothing to take interest in anymore, and that he is bored. He is delighted to see Raskolnikov, because he too seems in a strange condition, like there is something wrong with him. When Raskolnikov scowls at him, Svidrigailov haughtily defends his vulgarity, saying that he isn't interested in others' opinions and that sometimes it is suitable to be vulgar. Raskolnikov comments that Svidrigailov has plenty of friends in Petersburg and asks what he wants with him. Svidrigailov acknowledges that he does have many friends there, but that he hasn't and isn't going to see any of them. He reflects on his past, telling Raskolnikov that he was once a card sharper and went to prison for debt. 
Then Marfa Petrovna came along, fell in love with him, paid his debts, and bore him off to the country, and held his debt over him for the next seven years. Raskolnikov asks whether, if it wasn't for that, Svidrigailov would have left her, and he says it wasn't just the I.O.U. There was nowhere else to go, and nothing he wanted to do. He preferred staying at home and blaming others for his unhappiness. Then he asks Raskolnikov if it's true that passengers can go up in a great balloon from the Yusupov garden, and when Raskolnikov asks whether he would go up, he says he wouldn't. Svidrigailov says that he stayed with Marfa Petrovna even after she made him a present of a considerable sum of money, as a gesture of trust. When Raskolnikov comments that he seems to be missing her, Svidrigailov asks whether he believes in ghosts. He then tells Raskolnikov that Marfa Petrovna's ghost has visited him three times. When Raskolnikov says that he knew something of the sort was happening to him, Svidrigailov says he knew from the moment he saw Raskolnikov that there was something in common between them. The first time Marfa Petrovna's ghost came to Svidrigailov, she talked of silly trifles, reminding him to wind the clock, offering to tell his fortune for the journey, asking how he liked her dress, and scolding him for desiring to remarry when he had just buried his wife. When Raskolnikov asks whether he had seen ghosts before, he says he was previously visited by the ghost of his serf, Filka. Raskolnikov says he ought to see a doctor, and Svidrigailov acknowledges that he is ill. But he contends that though ghosts only appear to the ill, that does not prove they aren't real. Perhaps it is just that the ill are more connected to the other world. Then he questions why we always imagine that other world to be something vast, and considers instead whether it might be some little room, black and grimy, with spiders in every corner. He says with a smile that that is how he would have made it, sending a chill through Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov asks again what he wants from him, and Svidrigailov says he has come to discuss Avdotya Romanovna's engagement to Luzhin. He says that in marrying Luzhin, she is sacrificing herself for her family, and that he is sure Raskolnikov would be glad if the marriage could be broken off. He denies having any personal motive in the matter, saying that though he once loved Avdotya Romanovna, he now has no feeling for her whatever. He says that he is determined to go on a certain journey, before which he wishes to make some preliminary arrangements. He wishes to make Avdotya Romanovna a present of 10,000 rubles to assist the rupture of her relationship with Luzhin, a man from whom she would gain nothing but harm. He defends the appropriateness of the gesture, saying he has no need for the money himself and would only squander it. He has no ulterior motive, and he wishes to prove that he is not capable only of harm. He begs Raskolnikov to repeat all this to Avdotya Romanovna, and says that if Raskolnikov refuses, he will find a way to tell her himself. He says that perhaps he and Raskolnikov will become friends, saying again that there is something alike about them. Raskolnikov asks whether he is starting soon on his travels. At first, he is perplexed, 
and then, recalling he had mentioned a journey, he laughs and says, "'If only you knew what you were asking.' He then says, "'Perhaps he will marry instead.' They say goodbye for the present, and in parting, Svidrigailov mentions that regardless, Avdotya Romanovna will receive three thousand roubles, left to her by Marfa Petrovna. Then he goes out, running into Razumihin in the doorway. The next of my posts was called The Fly and the Louse. We cannot talk about Part 3, Chapter 6, without talking about that chilling, heart-pounding dream, and about its parallels in Raskolnikov's nightmarish waking reality. Whatever strange relish Raskolnikov might have felt in his battle of wits with Porfiry, the conversation leaves him in a state of bitterness and paranoia. As he approaches Bakaleyev's house with Razumihin, he experiences a growing uneasiness and alarm, until he is forced to leave Razumihin to his mother and sister and run back home. He arrives there soaked with sweat and breathing heavily, and he rushes to the corner to examine whether maybe a chain or stud or bit of paper had slipped out and been lost in the hole in the wall, and might turn up as evidence against him. We've all experienced some version of the classic paranoia, did I leave the oven on? This is that feeling, magnified to nightmarish proportions. Then he emerges from his flat to find a strange man pointing at him, and when he chases him down to find out why, the man looks him in the eye and calls him a murderer. Raskolnikov's legs become weak, a cold shiver runs down his spine, and his heart first stands still and then throbs painfully. He goes back to his apartment in a delirium, and reflects incredulously on who that man could be and how he could have seen. He thinks in horror, you miss an infinitesimal line, and you can build it into a pyramid of evidence. In other words, the criminal is always plagued by the metaphorical hazard that a fly flew by and saw it. Then he experiences the compounding horror of his growing self-awareness about the pettiness and vulgarity of his crime. He is overcome by a feeling of self-loathing at his own paranoia and weakness and he suffers the realization that he knew, even in advance of the murder, that this is how he would feel. A real master, quote, makes a massacre in Paris, forgets an army in Egypt, wastes half a million men in the Moscow expedition, unquote, without a qualm, and altars are set up for him after his death. And Raskolnikov, by contrast, killed a wretched, skinny old woman with a red trunk under her bed. He laughs bitterly at the utter vulgarity of the image. He calls himself an aesthetic louse, disgusted by his desperate and futile efforts to defend the nobility of his motives, and convinced that he is, in fact, more vile and loathsome than the woman he killed. He turns the rage provoked by this realization against the old woman herself, saying that he shall never, never forgive her, and that he'd like to kill her all over again for making him suffer so. This paranoia, this terror, 
this self-contempt, are all things that I thought were reflected and brought to metaphorical life in his nightmare. First, there is his generalized anxiety and distress. He walks along in the dream, mournful and anxious. He is frightened by the beckoning stranger. He follows him with painful beating heart, and he is drawn back again to the scene of his crime. As he finds himself inside the old woman's flat, with everything as it was the night of the murder, all chillingly silent in the moonlight, a fly goes by and strikes the window pane with a plaintive buzz. He is haunted by the image of the overlooked detail, the simple thing by which a clever criminal gets caught, the fly that flew by and saw it. Then, feeling that someone is hiding behind it, he pushes aside a cloak and sees the old woman bent double, and he strikes her on the skull, but she does not stir, as if she were made of wood. He bends down to peer into her face and sees that she is laughing, and he hears laughter and whispering from the other room, and with every new blow to the old woman, the laughter only grows louder. This seems to me the perfect manifestation of his bitter self-loathing and contempt for the vulgarity of his crime. He wanted to believe himself an extraordinary man, with a noble purpose, who had a right to shed blood, who could do so without remorse, and who would be revered in the generation to come. But he is only a pathetic, paranoid louse, inefficacious and deserving of ridicule. I assume that the man he encountered on the street is real, and was not another dream. And I wonder whether he will in fact be Raskolnikov's fly. The last of my posts was called Svidrigailov. Svidrigailov is creepy. First, there's the manner in which he appears on the scene. Raskolnikov awakens from his chilling nightmare to see a strange man walk into his apartment, sit down on a chair, put his hands on his cane and his chin on his hands, and stare at Raskolnikov in his semi-sleep. This gives Svidrigailov the aura of a phantom, leaving the reader, like Raskolnikov, uncertain at first whether he is real or another manifestation of Raskolnikov's nightmares. Then there is the contemptible rationalization of his treatment of Dunya, in which he calls himself the victim. He's only a man, after all. He is capable of attraction. Reason is the slave of passion, and therefore, as a married man propositioning his teenage employee, he was acting in only the most natural and justifiable manner. Worse, there is his response to the allegation that he murdered his own wife. He insinuates that she was drunk and caused her own death, presents the exonerating conclusion of the coroner's inquiry, and says he considered himself whether the beating he gave her might have contributed to the calamity, and decided it hadn't. He also prides himself on only having struck her with a switch twice, not counting a third time of ambiguous character. What was that all about? He says it didn't even leave a mark, and then offers dismissive acknowledgement of how atrocious it was and all that. And finally, he justifies the beating by saying she liked it, 
because it gave her a sense of purpose and something to gossip about in town. He describes this beating, which we are to believe probably caused her death, as having fallen from heaven for her, because women relish being insulted so that they can enjoy the amusement of showing their indignation. This last comment was so reprehensible, I found myself wanting to lock arms with Raskolnikov and walk out on Svidrigailov together. With Raskolnikov. Was I right to interpret him as also defending murder if the victim is really aggravating? Such as, for example, one of those provoking Germans. This, again, seems to be something he thinks altogether defensible. He would have us sympathize with the murderer, who was, after all, only victim of his own natural passions. That, he says, is the humane point of view. His image of eternity seems to have been made in his own likeness. Quote, We always imagine eternity as something beyond our conception, something vast, vast. But why must it be vast? Instead of all that, what if it's one little room, like a bathhouse in the country, black and grimy and spiders in every corner, and that's all eternity is? I sometimes fancy it like that. Svidrigailov says he will be going on some journey, which we learn has nothing to do with travel. So I think I can imagine what that might mean. So I'm curious how much more we will learn about him, and how, if at all, my image of him will change. But if it does evolve, I feel sure it will still be some variation on creepy.